turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. I want to spend this Lord's Day and the one coming, the Lord willing, considering the incarnation of the Son of God into the world. So let's go to Luke chapter 2, and our text is found in verses 8 to 20. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 20. Thus says the word of God, Now there were, in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth goodwill toward men. So it was, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. As Christmas is approaching, the story of the incarnation, the birth of the Son of God as a man, is celebrated all over the world. Manger scenes crop up and just about every neighborhood. The hymns of Isaac Watts and Charles Wesley, which extol the incarnation of the Son, are heard on radios all over the place, from dentist offices to mechanic shops to department stores. It's the only time of year when many secular spaces are invaded with the music and message of the sacred. But, How many of those who honor Jesus in name through music or a manger scene dishonor him with lives that are not lived to his praise? Christmas in today's America is largely just cultural. Just as Christianity in our nation is mostly just cultural and nominal. Christmas time is treated as a tradition whose purpose is to simply perhaps strengthen social bonds and or to bolster the economy. 
Now, it's true that Christianity does have beneficial implications for the social integrity of our commonwealth. And it's also true that Christianity has beneficial consequences for our economic system. It teaches principles that cohere well with the incentivized work ethic, for example, that is the backbone of capitalism. And so Christianity has contributed historically to the prosperity of individuals and nations in major ways. And that's a historical fact. And without a doubt, we have to admit that it has been a part of the sovereign purpose of God because all things fall under the decree of God's sovereign purpose to bolster national economies through the increased spending that takes place during the Christmas season. As people purchase and give gifts to one another, they contribute to the circulation of currency in the economy, and through their generosity and gift-giving, they actually contribute to the prosperity of the nation. But the downside of all this is that man's heart is sinful. And so people prey upon Christmas time with motives of greed and covetousness. And children who receive gifts but aren't taught the message and values of Christianity end up looking forward to Christmas time for no other reason than to receive that new thing. And so the entire Christmas tradition is vulnerable to being exploited by the evils of materialism and making it more about the gifts than about the God who is the giver of the greatest gift can inculcate in our youth the very love for the things of this world that the word of God condemns. 1 John 2.15 says, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Well, God's central purpose in the advent of Jesus Christ is not social and it's not commercial. It's redemptive and theological. The Son of God became man not to bolster corporations who take advantage of the story and exploit it through their merchandising and marketing. He clothed himself with flesh so that he could bleed for the sake of our souls. He came to save us from sin and to bring us to praise. To save us from sin, to bring us to praise. And so it's about what he became incarnate, not only to save us from, but what he came to save us to. And the passage we have before us reminds us of that, which is why it's so appropriate to meditate on it this time of year. This passage reminds us that the chief end for which God created the world is his glory. Because in this passage, the glory of God, made manifest through the incarnation, is revealed and responded to. And that is the greatest event in the history of the world. And God, 
being the God of immeasurable glory as well as of limitless love. He has designed the purpose of our redemption such that it results in us experiencing our greatest benefit in correlation with his love with his ultimate glorification in correspondence with his glory. And so God seeking his own glory as the end of all things is not contrary to our consummate happiness. Rather, God's glory and our joy combine and come to their ultimate expression in our eternal salvation. And the heavenly state that is yet to come, when God is perfectly glorified by his saints, then too will we who are his saints experience the perfection of our blessedness and thus realize inexhaustible bliss and joy. And that's what the Westminster Catechism is getting at when it asks in its first question and answer, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so it's no wonder then that praise is so characteristic of our future state of glory. Praise. Praise is one of the chief activities of heaven. And just think about what it is. Praise is verbal ascription of glory to God. That's what you do when you praise. You are ascribing glory to God with your words. Praise is also an expression of our enjoyment of God. Or more comprehensively, we could say that praise is a laudatory pronouncement to the honor of God in which we express our faith, hope, love, and contentment in God. And so God's glory and our delight in him unite in our praise. Just as God's glory and our joy in him are united in our salvation, so both of these are likewise expressed in our praise. Salvation combines both and praise expresses both. Praise is, therefore, brothers and sisters, it is one of the most important activities that you will ever engage in. Because praise is the way that we as the redeemed of God express our acknowledgement that the glory of God is the chief end of all things. Praise is then centrally related to the main purpose for which God created and redeemed us through the gospel of his son. Hence Paul, the apostle Paul, when he sums up the whole sweeping scope of the plan of salvation in Ephesians chapter 1, he writes, In Christ also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. The whole purpose of our salvation from our predestination in eternity past to the 
forgiveness of sins which we have through the redemption that Christ has purchased with his blood to the gift of faith that is conceded to us, whereby, as Paul explains here, we first trusted in Christ the whole scope and plan of salvation from eternity past through time into eternity future is the praise of the glory of God's grace. God made us and redeemed us for the acclaim of his glory. The goal of the gospel is the praise of God's glory. God sent his son not so that we would glorify things, but so that we would glorify him. And that's precisely the message of Luke chapter 2 in the passage we read. An angel of the Lord and a revelation of glory announces the gospel that Christ is born. Now, what is the revelation of the glory in which the angel appears? Well, it is the communicated luster or luminosity of the glory of God. It is the angel reflecting the glory of God. It's not the intrinsic glory of the angel itself. It's the reflected glory of God. So the angel appears. The glory of God outshines and reflects from the angel. In the revelation of glory, the angel announces the gospel that Christ is born. And then the hosts of heaven and the shepherds on earth praise God in response to the revelation of his glory in the gospel. And so... That's what I want us to reflect on today so that we can have a biblical perspective of these things during this Advent season. And as we do, I want us to pay attention to how the incarnation of God's Son is central not only to the message of the gospel, but especially and particularly how it is a cause for our praise as the people of God. And so let's take a look at the first place at the Annunciation of the angel. Verses 8 to 10. Now there were in that same country, this is the country of Bethlehem and the immediate vicinity, there were shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And then this revelation appeared to them. Now normally when a king was born, the king would be proclaimed and acclaimed from the highest courts of the land and broadly publicized from the highest officials of the land all the way down to the lowest citizenship. But that's not what God does when he sends his son into the world. He is, he is proclaiming, announcing, and acclaiming the birth of the king, his son, in this obscure little corner of the world, it says, at night to this group of otherwise insignificant shepherds. Now, if you go back into the writings of the Second Temple period, uh, it, it was actually inscribed into Jewish tradition that because shepherds were considered such a lowly class in that society, and they tended to associate with that band of people that the Pharisees categorized as sinners, we saw that in the Gospel of Mark, these categorical sinners, that the Jewish traditions, actually, there's writings which forbid them from, or, or forbid officials from receiving their testimony in court. 
Shepherds were typically despised by the time we get to the first century scene. And that's one of the one of the main themes of the Gospel of Luke is God's grace and glory being revealed to those who are socially insignificant and despised and lowly, those who are the outcasts of society. And so here, this glorious revelation bursts forth by night onto the scene of these shepherds who are keeping their flocks. It says, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, we don't know which angel this was. Just previously, the angel that announced, we call the Annunciation of the Birth of Christ. There's the Annunciation to Mary, then the Annunciation to the Shepherds. We know that with the, the Annunciation to Mary, that it was Gabriel who brought that message. Gabriel means Mighty One of the Lord. He was a special messenger of God, some high-ranking angel, apparently, who previously appeared in the book of Daniel in chapters 8 and 9 of Daniel. Gabriel brings the message to Mary. This angel may have been Gabriel, or it may have been some other angel. This angel isn't flying between heaven and earth. He is standing upon the earth. And it says, And the glory of the Lord shone around him, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid. It's a typical pattern we see with the uh, revelations of God's glory throughout history, that his revelations strike fear into the hearts of those who behold it. And then throughout the gospel, as the disciples fear, as they catch revelations of the true identity of Jesus Christ as the divine Messiah, it says they they, they feared multiple times, and, and Jesus would say to them, Do not be afraid. Words of peace and assurance. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. What a message. This angel lived up to his title, Angelos, angel. That means messenger. And this one brought a message that eclipses every other message that every other angel had ever brought to man on God's behalf. He brought, he says, glad tidings. Now historically, that would have been understood by Luke's readers in the light of the double context in which the shepherds and the original recipients found themselves. The first was the Roman imperial context. Luke already framed the scene within the Roman imperial context when he wrote here in chapter 2, verse 1, that it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And so the land was under the jurisdiction of Rome. And as far as the Romans were concerned, Caesar alone was the reigning lord. That's why he had the right to register and tax everybody, because they owed their allegiance to him. And the Greek word that the angel uses for glad tidings, we could literally translate that as evangel. Citizens of the Roman Empire had only ever heard of one evangel, just one evangel. 
in the historical context, the only evangel that they had ever heard was the announcement that Caesar reigns over his empire. The angel is declaring, therefore, that not only does Caesar now have a rival, but that Caesar himself has a king, and that there is an evangel which supplants and replaces the inferior evangel of Rome, and that Christ is born to reign, and that Christ himself will be the benevolent provider and savior and shepherd and Lord of the world. Even Caesar will bow the knee. The other context in which the angel's announcement of glad tidings was given was, of course, the the Jewish one. They were, first of all, Hebrew shepherds. The gospel event itself was born out out of the matrix of the Hebrew scriptures. And that term that the angel here uses, glad tidings, It's one word in the original, euangelizo. It means to announce an evangel, to proclaim good news, or to preach a gospel or the gospel. This word is used in association with the Savior in the Greek version of Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 9, which says, to translate the Greek literally into English, it says, O proclaimer of glad tidings. Or we could translate it as, O announcer of the gospel to Zion. Lift up your voice with might. O proclaimer of good tidings, or announcer of the evangel to Jerusalem. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Again, the same word occurs in Isaiah 52, 7. The feet of a proclaimer of glad tidings of peace, or the evangel of peace. As a proclaimer of glad tidings of good things, I will make your salvation heard, saying, O Zion, your God will reign. And so the angel appears here on the scene as a herald of the gospel to confirm that God has come in the person of his son to establish his kingdom, reign, and grace. And now if you've been sitting through our series on Mark, that should sound familiar because that's the same central message of the gospel in Mark because Mark and Luke are, after all, teaching the same gospel. Well, the angel says in verse 11, There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. An anointed one is born of the royal lineage of David, and this child bears divine titles. Do you see that? Notice how here it's announced that the child is born, and then that child is described with the divine titles of Savior and Lord and Christ. Christ isn't his last name, it's his title. And so, the child is born, child bears divine titles. And there's another clear place in the Old Testament where this same pattern is followed. And the titles that this child bears, by the way, Savior and Lord, both of those are found all throughout the Old Testament, at least functionally, 
Specifically, God himself is called Savior in Isaiah 43, 11. Besides me, there is no Savior, he says. The angel is adopting what Isaiah said and applying it to this child who is born. Lord, of course, which the angel calls the child, that is the most common divine title used for God in the Greek version of the Old Testament because that's the title that substitutes for God's name Yahweh, which is his most often repeated name. And so the angel is actually alluding to specifically Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. We know this one, right? This, this is on our Christmas cards. Isaiah 9, 6 says a child is born and then that declaration is followed by a series of divine titles. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. Here's the titles. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so the angel is saying that Isaiah 9-6 has come to pass. And he's also gloriously summarizing at the same time the mystery of the incarnation. That the babe in the manger is the mighty God who made and rules over the universe. Thus the angel's annunciation in verses 10 and 11 is a loaded revelation which communicates the essential theological truth of the incarnation. The babe who was born retains divine titles, even though he appears as a helpless little babe in a manger, dependent upon the breast of his mother, yet he retains his divine names, Savior and Lord. He retains his divine attributes, his divine qualities, all of the divine attributes that he possessed as the eternally existing son of God. He continues to possess in fullness and infinity in his incarnate state as a babe in the manger. The son of God became a human babe without ceasing to be all that he ever was as the son of God. Of God. And so, this is the mystery of the incarnation being revealed that the angel is declaring. So holy, so sacrosanct is this mystery that God reserved its initial revelation for utterance only by the sinless lips of angels. When it came to pass, God reserved its utterance only for the sinless lips of angels. This is a holy mystery. The first time this mystery was revealed, God sent Gabriel to announce it to Mary. Here in Luke chapter 1. The annunciation to the shepherds is the second time in Luke's gospel that this mystery is revealed. And again, it's announced with holy lips that have never been defiled by sin. And I was thinking about this, and I don't know exactly what to make of it other than to say that the doctrine of the incarnation is a mystery that ought to be spoken of 
only with the reverence befitting an angel. That is, the incarnation is so holy, so mysterious, so at the core of the identity and glory of God as he has made himself known to us, that it must never be taught except with extreme care so that we don't defile the doctrine with our unclean, sinful lips. And sadly, that is what many have done. And corrupting it fatally, they have lost their souls for it. We should receive this doctrine that the angel is uttering and treasure it in its untainted and uncorrupted purity just as it is delivered to us in the word of God, just as if we received it straight from the lips of the angel himself. Now there's one more key passage of the Old Testament that this angel is alluding to in verse 11. It's the only one which clearly declares that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, in the city of David. You know which, uh, which one that is? Micah, 5-2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, it's talking about his being born in time, his being incarnate, coming forth unto God in his incarnation, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forths are from old, from everlasting. His going forth in time through the incarnation is an analogous reflection of his eternal procession as the Son of God within the eternal trinity. Well, that's the second Hebrew scripture that the angel alludes to, which summarizes the truth about the incarnation of Christ. And then in verse 12, the angel tells the shepherds, and notice this language, this will be a sign to you, a sign. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. Sign. That's actually a double entendre. It has two meanings in this text the prophetic and the literal. The angel is intentionally using a key word from Isaiah 7.14. Well, that's interesting. That one, too, makes it on our Christmas cards. Isaiah 7.14 speaks of the sign that God promised to the dynasty of David. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. The angel is saying, when you go into Bethlehem, O shepherds, and you see that baby lying in a stone trough used for feeding animals, newly born and tightly wrapped in strips of cloth, for that was the custom, then you will know that he is the one of whom I am speaking. He is the sign. He is the proof. He is the confirmation that all of God's promises concerning the salvation of his people are now going to be realized just as Isaiah prophesied to the house of Ahaz. 
So that's the third Old Testament passage that summarizes the incarnation of the God-man. And I think this is astonishing. The angel, and this one little pronouncement in verses 11 and 12, manages to tie together the three main go-to passages from the Old Testament that predict, uh, predict the incarnation of the God-man. The three main passages. All three passages he alludes to, Isaiah 9-6, 7-14, and Micah 5-2, clearly speak of deity conjoining with humanity to bring about salvation. And this event was so monumental that the angel in verse 11 just had to say that it was happening this day. This day there is born to you, this day in the city of David, a savior. This day is marked out from every other day, but it also initiates the, the great day of salvation that Yahweh had promised. It is the day when God visits his people in grace and salvation and redemption. It is the day that defines and shapes the flow of human history. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, said the apostle Paul. It was a day in which the world at large didn't recognize, a day which the world did not recognize, even as it came to pass, but a day which all the hosts of heaven stood up and acknowledged as the greatest act of God in history. And so this day was accompanied by the praise of heaven's hosts. Verses 13 to 14. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The incarnation took one angel to announce, but it took a multitude of angels to respond to it rightly. A portal into heaven was opened as it were, and the shepherds saw the child who was born. And that the one who was born, they saw that he is the one who all the hosts of heaven were created to adore. Jonathan Edwards said, quote, This is the greatest event of providence that ever the angels had beheld. End of quote. The angels had beheld many acts of the providence of God. Job 38.7 said that, when God laid the foundations of the earth, that the morning stars sang together, the sons of God sang the praises of God. That's the angels singing in the heavens when God created the world. And if the angels sang praises when God made the earth, how much more would they sing now that their creator had become his own creation as the divine and human natures of Christ were joined together for the sake of earth's redemption, now to bring about not just creation, but a glorious new creation. These angels had been praising the Son of God since the day of their creation. And now that the one that they had always been praising since they were made, now that he had become incarnate on earth, their praises reverberated into the material world and brought heaven's ambience to earth. This portrait of perfect praise 
this display of heavenly glory in the realm of nature. It was all a window into God's plan for the future of the world. The Son of God became incarnate to reconcile sinners on earth with the holiness of God in heaven. God's plan for the world, which he accomplishes through the gospel of his Son, is to make the earth the dwelling place of his heavenly glory. The shepherds saw in snapshot what we as the saints will behold forever. But what they initially saw, it was a terrifying picture. It says they were greatly afraid when they saw the, the initial angel. Then when they saw this multitude, of course that would have been initially a fearsome sight. Verse 13 says they saw a multitude of heavenly hosts. The original says they saw heavenly stratia. Stratia, that's a specific word in Greek, and it means army. It means army, and it means only army. Angels in the biblical narrative sometimes appeared with, for instance, horses and chariots of fire. That was military equipment in the ancient world. They're often seen with swords. They are depicted as battling evil in the heavens. There's a great multitude of these, soldiers, these heavenly hosts and soldiers of God's army. Bildad said in Job 25.3, is there any number to his armies? Revelation 5.11 says, literally, it says, Ten thousands of ten thousands. Remember that? Literally it says, myriads of myriads of them surround God's throne. These are powerful spiritual beings. Psalm 103.20 says, They are mighty ones of strength, to render the Hebrew literally. 2 Peter 2.11 says, They are greater in might and power than men. They are described as fearsome in their glory depictions of angels as cute babies with wings that's ridiculous an angel's face is like lightning his appearance can make strong men fall down comatose hence the shepherds initially again luke 2 9 it says they were greatly afraid Angels are heavenly instruments of divine majesty and might through which God acts in history. Heaven is a place of God's special presence where his glory irradiates all things. Revelation 21 describes the, the glory of heaven and its shining and bright luminosity as, as the shining of, of crystals and gems. Since angels are heavenly creatures, it may be that God designed the angelic nature itself to be a conduit of his power and glory, just like the gems of heaven irradiate with his beautiful brilliance. These are beautiful creatures, yet mighty and potentially terrifying. And so here they are as a mighty army reflecting the majesty and glory of God. And they will come with Christ at the end of days to execute vengeance on the ungodly, says Jude. But here, the king is born 
the kings are surrounded by a royal entourage. This is his royal entourage of armies that appears with him. But their swords, thankfully, were sheathed. They're not going to be sheathed when he comes again. But this time, their swords were sheathed. And the army appears to manifest, to, to, to paradoxically announce peace. The army announces peace on earth. Instead of a battle cry against sinners, instead of God coming and sending his angelic army, as the psalm says, to wet his bow and bend his sword and pour out his fury on the ungodly, which is what we all so rightfully deserve, he sends his army to announce peace as they sing a song of praise to the Savior of sinners. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The structure of their speech is poetic. It suggests they were singing. Historically, the church has deemed this to be a song. It is called this the canticle of the angels. The incarnation evokes such praise that straightforward speech becomes incapable of expressing it appropriately. It's so glorious that speech must break out into song. They attribute glory to God in the highest. In the highest, meaning in the highest heavens, in the most exalted place, as the most exalted being of all. But if God should receive glory in the highest place, then it goes to follow that he should also receive glory to the highest degree. And so in the ancient church, the Latin Vulgate had initially translated highest as altissimus, meaning highest place, because that is what the angels were saying. But then later theologians came along, namely Bonaventure, and they changed it to in excelsis, which can mean in the highest place, or to the highest degree. And so the theologians of the church insisted that it meant both. God is to be glorified in the highest place and to the highest degree. He is the most exalted of all, and we are to love and adore and praise him with all the affection of our hearts to the nth degree. And so that change has made its way into the great hymns of the church, which are modeled after this song of the angels. Thus, when we sing angels, we have heard on high, Gloria in excelsis Deo, we're singing what these angels sing. And we're saying glory to God in the highest place and to the highest degree. Oh, brethren, may we not just sing that. May it be the reality of our hearts and lives. And they are praising God for precisely the same thing that the initial angel announced. You see that? They're praising God for the gospel concerning which the incarnation is the central historical event. So they declare, on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now different manuscripts and translations render this in different ways. It's very difficult passage. 
to render. The ESV says, on earth peace among those with whom God is pleased, with whom he is pleased. But no matter which reading you go with, it's pretty clear that they're all talking about basically the same thing. God's mercy is extended to people who are the objects of his undeserved favor. Christ became incarnate to reconcile sinners and to give us peace and fellowship with God. That's the kind of peace that the angels are talking about. He's not talking about gathering in a circle and holding hands and and singing kumbaya. He's talking about the peace of reconciled sinners to God through the incarnation and blood of God's Son. That's what they're talking about. And when Christ comes again, he will bring peace to the whole world when he reigns over all and God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And all this, all this is a cause for praise. In fact, the angel song itself is an invitation to the shepherds to enter into their praise. And this leads us to our final point, the praise of God's people. Verses 15 to 19, the shepherds go to Bethlehem. They visit the house of Joseph and Mary, where they were staying. They see the infant Christ. And then it says they made widely known what had happened. Verse 20 then summarizes the outcome and end of the whole scene. It says, Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. You see what happened. They glorified and praised God as it was told them. In verses 13 and 14, the angels were praising and glorifying God. Now it was the shepherds who were doing so. And so the declarations and praises of the angels became the praises of the shepherds who represent God's believing people. The praises of heaven spilled over into the earth so that the church on earth would unite its voice with the song of the angels in heaven. And so when we as the church declare the praises of our incarnate Savior, we too are joining with the praises of the angels. And I'm not saying that in some sensational or merely figurative way. We are literally joining the praises of the angels. The incarnation and work of Christ has opened up for us the portals of heaven, as it were, so we can enter in by faith and have real spiritual fellowship by faith with the presence of God in Christ in heaven. And so, the author to the Hebrews rightfully writes, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. You have come by faith into that heavenly assembly into which the shepherds caught a glimpse. 
It is yours by faith now, dear brother, dear sister, and it will be yours by sight in just a little while longer. So when the angels appeared to the shepherds, singing for the glory of God, they were extending an invitation to them and to us through them to likewise praise him for the incarnation of the Savior. If there is anything that the incarnation of the Savior should evoke from us, it's joy and jubilation and praise. And so that's my exhortation to us all this Lord's Day, that we would praise our King for his incarnation. And let's praise him, not just during this Advent season, but throughout the, the whole year over the fact that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. But how exactly can we do that? Well, I think we need to start with the basics. And if we're to praise him for the incarnation, we need to learn to praise him in the first place. We need to begin by recognizing that praise is such a neglected spiritual discipline. Many of us are Good at complaining, but pathetic at praising. How many of the Psalms command us to praise the Lord? Such a simple concept, but so often repeated that we might be tempted to overlook it without actually being intentional about practicing it every day. Now, these shepherds, they went from tending their flocks to praising God because the glory of God broke out among them. Well, the glory of God is broken out among us because Christ our Savior has come. And so, will we, will we allow our thoughts to be consumed with our mundane chores so that our thought life scarcely rises above the tide of the earthly? Or... Will we keep God's glory foremost in our thoughts so that the content of our constant daily meditation would elicit from our hearts continual affections which well up into praise? To praise. To praise, of course, is simply to express our admiration for God, to extol his excellencies. And we can do that with simple speech, we can do that in our prayers, and we can do that through song. Those are the three basic ways in which we can praise the Lord. Through speech, through prayer, and through song. And we should be intentional about incorporating praise into one or more of these activities every day. Not just once a week, every day. And as we do, we should keep in mind that our praise is at its best when it's specific and detailed, when it makes much of the attributes and works of God, when it is saturated with gospel truth, when it expresses heartfelt gratitude for God's gift of salvation, and when it reflects the affectionate admiration of our hearts. And so... We should praise God, not just in a general way. We should praise our Savior specifically, specifically, in detail, at length, and especially by confessing the truth and theology of his incarnation. The praises 
of the angels. In verse 14, what were they confessing in their praise? They were confessing the truth about why Christ became incarnate. The praises of the shepherds. In verse 20, they were all for the things they had heard and seen, it says, about the incarnation of Christ. And so one of the purest expressions of praise is to praise God for the gospel. Not just to praise him as the author of nature, but to praise him as the author of salvation. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips. And literally in the Greek it says, confessing his name. We praise God, the participle, how? Confessing his name. That's how we praise him. And so, praise comes to expression in the act of confession. And that's what Paul does in 1 Timothy 3.16, where he wrote a succinct confession of faith. A confession of faith that was probably in wide use throughout the early church of his time. And he wrote there, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Paul's words are structured like a hymn. And so many scholars believe that the early church would cite these words when they would congregate together to confess their faith as they sang about it. What we have in 1 Timothy 3.16 is a confession of faith, a creed from the pen of the Apostle Paul. And so this is a confession that is penned in praise to God. It's both a confession and a hymn. And the first and great truth that it confesses about the Lord is what? That God was manifested in the flesh, the incarnation. Later confessions of faith that the church formulated, namely the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian definition, they all confess the incarnation. In fact, the truth about the incarnation is really central to all those great early, what we call Catholic in the true and good sense of the term, creeds. They were all written to safeguard, to confess, and to praise central truths about the incarnation. And so we should study not only these creeds, but the Christology behind them, so that we can learn and confess with the universal truth, with the universal church, that is, the truth about God taking on flesh to make satisfaction for our sins. It's only by getting to know, by studying, by learning about the attributes of Christ and his dual natures, the work of Christ and who he is and his perfections that to that same extent we can then therefore praise him accordingly. Our praise to Christ for his incarnation, it can only extend as far as, as what we know about him. And so let's be specific and intentional and strategic in our pursuit about the knowledge of Christ. And let's not shy away during this season from confessing to our lost family members and friends 
that Christ was indeed born in Bethlehem. Yes, he was born in that place known as the house of bread to become bread from heaven for us. And if we eat of his goodness, we will enjoy eternal life and bask forever in the glory of God to his eternal praise. Amen. O oh, Father, do make us to experience the true fruit of your spirit, among which is joy. Give us joy and peace in believing. Give us joy for our incarnate, crucified, and risen Savior. And help us, Lord, to bear up in the struggle against all our temptations and sins, through all the trials and dark valleys that we go through, Lord. Do please fill our hearts with joy, nonetheless, that the joy of the Lord may be our strength. In the name of Christ, amen.